Welcome to the Horizon Scanning Podcast at Deutsche Bank with me, Dan Hunter, where we unpack emerging risks and opportunities for the economy. Today, we're discussing inflation. The Federal Reserve Chairman and the White House Council of Advisors has done their best to persuade the market that inflation is not a concern and probably transitory. But not everybody is convinced. The historical level of stimulus that is flowing into the economy, combined with the expected jump in consumer spending post-COVID, is going to have a lasting effect. Our speakers today come from the opposite sides of this thought spectrum, and they'll do their best to persuade you that their perspective is correct. Representing the view that inflation will be transitory is my colleague, Peter Hooper. And taking the opposite end of this thought uh, spectrum is my colleague, Jim Reed. Jim, let's start with you. You've just published a paper with your colleagues talking about a possible regime shift for inflation that could reverse the trend that we've seen for 30 years. Jim, expand on what you're saying in this paper. Yeah, thanks, Dan. Um, I think to see how much things have changed, I think you have to really start back some 40 years ago from uh, when Reagan was elected and Vol uh, Volcker was appointed Fed chair just before that. Uh, Reagan was perceived to have a mandate uh, to reduce big government and, and Volcker had a mandate uh, to do everything he could to tame inflation. So if we contrast that today uh, with what Biden is presiding over, he's basically uh, presiding over the, the biggest peacetime increase in government involvement in the economy in history, just at a time when the Fed has changed its uh, modus operandi to tolerate inflation overshoot uh, and making sure the economy sees realized gains rather than just forecasted ones. So in essence, they are ignoring the lag between monetary policy and uh, what it does to the economy and, and prices. And overall, monetary and fiscal policy in the US has never been so coordinated and, uh, and, and stimulative, and it dwarfs anything seen uh, around the GFC or during the 1930s depression. And, you know, I think alongside this, the global orthodoxy is shifting. You know, a decade ago, as we came out of the financial crisis, we very quickly stumbled into the Greek uh, default and the European sovereign crisis. And at the same time, Reinhardt and Rogoff wrote the seminal works on the negative economic and financial outcomes that, that come with having debt to GDP above a, a certain level, which we were breaching at that time. And, you know, this combination petrified every government uh, and they were concerned that they would be next uh, to be vulnerable to kind of the bond uh, vigilantes from a sovereign default risk point of view. And, and as such, a, a decade of fiscal consolidation and austerity uh, begun. Um, and given that banks and households were retrenching at the same time, this made it hard for the economy to grow strongly and very difficult for inflation to take hold, even if central banks were printing trillions of dollars. Most of that ended up in financial assets in, in the end. Now, this orthodoxy was starting to be questioned in the latter half of the decade. Uh, populism uh, caused a rebellion against the economic impact and uh, of inequality, uh, you know, poor growth. Uh, so, you know, fiscal retrenchment was being questioned uh, and also yields hitting multi-century uh, lows helped argue that we didn't, we shouldn't have the same fiscal constraints that people thought we should at the start of the decade. And, you know, even ultra uh, fiscally conservative Germany was starting to have a debate about uh, black zero uh, again. But I think the pandemic has massively accelerated this debate. We now have levels of uh, sovereign debt far in excess of uh, when the sovereign crisis hit. And yet no serious commentator today 
is talking about short to medium term sovereign uh, risk anywhere. And with central banks proven to be able to buy near limitless amounts of government bonds uh, and keep yields low, um, the fear has rightly or wrongly gone away. Uh, and therefore, politicians are increasingly being emboldened uh, to spend more. Uh, and Biden has probably taken this to, it, to the extremes. But even in Europe, uh, we've had the recovery fund in the last 12 months, which could be upscaled in the future. And it, it's hard to see the restrictive debt stability pact coming back in Europe in its current uh, or its former form. I should have said. So, you know, just to sum this up, uh, there has been a regime shift in the economic orthodoxy towards higher fiscal spending, which central banks seem only too happy uh, to support. So, you know, we are getting as close as we possibly could do to helicopter money or even MMT, as some people like to uh, call it. And that's inflationary in my views. And look, in a fiat money world, with nothing back in paper money, in my opinion, it's very, very, very easy to create inflation. All you need is uh, there to be political will uh, to have fiscal and monetary policy both being highly expansionary. And that's what we're seeing today. And we we didn't uh, a decade ago. So, Peter, Jim seems a little bit concerned by this new orthodoxy. What is your take on the matter? Well, Dan, thanks very much. Um, you, know, you know, I actually agree that, uh, that excessive inflation is a major risk uh, for, for many of the reasons that Jim has, has cited. Uh, and this is why I welcome the opportunity to co-author this important piece with, with David and Jim. But uh, I, I don't see sustained excessive inflation as the most likely outcome. Um, and we may differ on this. So, so to get, get the debate started, let me just note simply that uh, this, this fiscal regime shift uh, that, that Jim has flagged uh, will be very short-lived if, if Republicans take back either the House or the Senate next year. Uh, historical experience has certainly suggested that the party out of power in the administration tends to do very well in midterm elections. So uh, I give the Republicans a good chance of uh, doing just that and, and nipping this uh, excessive fiscal uh, outlook uh, in the bud. So Jim, inflation surprises significantly in April and we get the May figures very soon. You know, how do you see this playing out in the, in the near term? Um, I think the risks are that inflation continues uh, to go up and uh, it, it is more than just base effects. Um, the prices of many goods and services have risen uh, impressively thanks to you know, sustained increases in, in demand and a wide range of supply disrupt, uh, disruptions that aren't going to go away uh, in a hurry. Um, perceptions of increased pricing power will also uh, bolster general inflation psychology. And, and raise inflation expectations further as has happened before. And I think on that, it's interesting that US inflation expectations are making their first journey back into their 1998 to 2014 uh, range. And this is important because with the oil price slump of 2013 and 14, it, it, it seemed uh, that inflation expectations uh, dropped markedly on that event and never recovered until the last couple of months. Uh, where we are starting to get back into that 1998-2014 uh, regime. And look, once expectations take hold for a few months, they are difficult to, to lodge. History tells us that. Uh, and I wonder, you know, talking about this oil thing, I wonder whether ESG is also playing its part. Um, the shale revolution helped push oil prices 
uh, down and that uh, industry has seen a rapid contraction in a environmentally conscious world and maybe the price of oil will stay back in that higher range as a result and, and maybe the days of that ultra low inflation expectations we saw for the last seven years are, are over. Peter, you're close to the way the Fed thinks. Tell us, what, why are they so convinced that inflation is just transitory? Well, no question. Uh, the, the, the recent uh, data have been eye-catching, and it's been expected. I mean, certainly the April number is up, up, up sharply and, and uh, may probably going to be, be worse. But so far, it's, it's certainly not at all a broad increase. It's pretty narrow. Uh, very few categories um, uh, are, are being heavily affected by COVID account for, this, for a large majority of the increase. Used cars, airfares, lodging away from home. Um, and such narrow skews typically do not signal a sustained push uh, uh, on, on inflation. Um, uh, a, a similar surge in used car prices last year was quickly reversed as supply demand imbalances were dissipated. So base effects, uh, the Fed's been focusing on this a lot. Uh, we're seeing them now uh, as, as uh, prices, push, inflation pushed higher as, as, a sharp, as a very sharp price declines uh, from a year ago have dropped off. Those, uh, those base effects are gonna be reversed. Uh, uh, that's gonna be at next year as, as this year's price surges drop off. Finally, Jim, Jim talked, uh, talked about inflation expectations. Um, yes, they have risen impressively, but from very depressed levels. They're well below levels the Fed was comfortable with. Uh, I mean, well below levels consistent with the Fed's target. And now they are just about back to normal. Um, um, finally, uh, uh, it, you know, it, it's, it's interesting that the market agrees so much with this transitory inflation story. Um, there, there must be something to it. So, Jim, it's said that if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. And every nation in the world has a different history and relationship with inflation. And sometimes that memory fades or we don't look across to other nations and learn from them. Give us a historical parallel. Is there a, is there a time in American history that we that kind of reflects where we are today? Yeah, I, I feel a bit guilty answering this question because I'm going to use a lot of Peter's excellent work on the 1960s to argue uh, against him. So apologies, Peter. Um, back then, after nearly two decades of low inflation, inflation, uh, inflation then started to ignite after President Johnson's uh, guns and butter policy. Basically, this was spending on big society movement uh, and the Vietnam War. Um, and this pushed the output gap uh, to over a positive 5%. And, you know, in Peter's uh, US economics team, in their higher growth scenario, where, where they assume uh, the massive uh, excess savings that have been accumulated in the pandemic uh, get spent a little bit more quickly than their base case. You know, we could have a, a positive output gap again of uh, more than 5% next year. And, and, you know, that's the point in the 1960s where inflation uh, did uh, spark. Now, even under the base case scenario from our, our, our excellent US economics team, they, they see a 2% positive output gap. And I suppose remember that after the financial crisis, it took till around about 2017 to the out, for the output gap to uh, close. So regardless of whether it's base case or a high case, we are going to close the output gap pretty soon. And it took, you know, it took seven or eight years after the financial crisis to close it. So it's a very different uh, scenario. So that, that's the historical experience that I think is, is fairly interesting. 
to appear. I can tell by the look on your face that you, you, you as the author of that research don't agree. Why is, why is Jim wrong? Jim, thank you for the compliment, but you know, it's, it's really Matt Luzetti and team. Uh, the, no, no one's better on the street uh, than these guys. Uh, they certainly appreciate the risk, but they've been doing a lot of the really great number crunching that uh, tells us this, this baseline view is still realistic. Um, so, so, so the key to repeating the 60s uh, takeoff inflation is, is, or anything approaching the, the great inflation of the 70s is, is really getting the output gap up substantially further. That, that is really seeing the economy overheat. Um, and, and the, big, the big risk here that, that allows that is, is this huge war chest of household saving that's, that's been accumulated. Um, and and uh, the problem is you, you'd need to see a, about a quarter to a third of that spent uh, fairly quickly. Um, and that's, that's just not the most likely outcome. It's certainly a risk, but it's not the most likely outcome. Uh, it's, it's more likely to be spent out more slowly over time for, for several reasons, as, as Matt and team have noted, the shift in spending we saw during the, the recent downturn is much less conducive to a pent up demand kind of recovery that you normally see. Um, the, the spending was heavily, uh, reduced heavily in services, not as you typically see in durable goods uh, uh, that, that are, are much more prone to a bounce back I mean, buying autos and, and, and appliances is what you typically see coming out of a recession, but they've been buying them uh, during this downturn. Um, uh, another factor is, as I noted, that the fiscal shift uh, that we're seeing is, is not necessarily going to be long-lived. Um, and and uh, finally, on this, uh, uh, his, history is, is, is really not much of a guide. Um, the the mid-60s were unique in that healthcare inflation rose very sharply as Medicare and Medicaid were introduced with inelastic supply. It, 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 it takes a long time to, to train new doctors to, and, and uh, that, that, did, that did really push inflation up substantially during that period. Finally, there, there are benefits of hindsight. Uh, I mean, having gone through uh, the great inflation and then the, the pain of the, great, uh, the Volcker disinflation uh, and, and long-standing Fed performance in that direction has certainly helped to anchor inflation expectations, and the market seems to be buying into that Fed credibility. Uh, and um, uh, I might note that the, this hindsight is also going to have an important impact on, on Fed policy going forward, but uh, maybe we'll get to that later. So question for you both. What structural trends are pushing in the direction that you think inflation? So Peter, what do you think is quelling it? And Jim, what do you think is fueling it? Well, I, th I think I already alluded to di digitalization, Amazonization, if you will, the tremendous flow of information about products and prices globally, um, in intensifying competitive pressures, not to mention the, the, the huge improvement in the labor market through, through job search engines and employee search engines. I mean, finding jobs or employees anywhere in the, uh, around the country or around the world uh, in, in any particular uh, field is, is much easier today than it was um, um, in, in decades past. Yeah, I, 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 would, I would say um, globalization has been uh, the key macro story from the 1970s onwards, and that has been disinflationary. But this trend uh, of upward growth in globalization is unlikely to continue. It probably stalled in the 2010s as the political climate 
uh, move more towards protection. Uh, and I think the pandemic is probably now, in addition, placing kind of global supply chains under fresh uh, scrutiny. So both countries and corporates are keen to ensure the resilience of you know key inputs, uh, uh, especially amid amid uh, rising geopolitical tensions. And you know the desire that desire for resilience for me means there'll be a bias towards investment in home production and especially in critical sectors for uh, economy. Uh, and this will likely res result in higher prices, which. Um, you know, will be passed on to the consumer, I think. So, Peter, if Jim is right and the Fed haven't quite called this correctly, how are they going to respond and when? Or how should they respond? Well, uh, Dan, here, here I'm going to shift gears or, or direction even. Um, there is there, no, no question there is some upside risk to inflation on this. Um, if, if inflation overshoots, as Jim suggests, and, and, and proves to be excessive and persistent, the, the Fed's going to be late to the game, behind the curve, if you will, in dealing with it uh, for several reasons. First, uh, there's a recognition lag. Uh, the Fed currently sees this surge in, current, uh, surge in inflation as transitory. It's going to take time to recognize that it's a, it's a real problem. Second, uh, even more important, is this uh, shift from preemptive to reactive policy orientation under their flexible average inflation target. Because inflation has been so low for so long, the, the Fed actually wants to, wants to overshoot its target. Uh, and, and it wants to see that it's overshooting, not just for, be, before act on a forecast. Um, uh, the important objective is also to get inflation, un, I'm sorry, unemployment as, as low as possible. Um, normally under, under, preempt, in, uh, under a preemptive world, the, the, Fed, the Fed would have raised rates by at least several hundred basis points by, uh, by the time we, we get toward uh, full employment. There is some concern about political pressure uh, and there's maybe some scope to worry here, but, but uh, this can certainly be overplayed. The Democratic administration in Congress is not gonna like what it sees and we have a Fed chair who's up for reappointment next year. Um, Several new appointments to the Fed's Board of Governors uh, are, will be made, and they're likely to be sympathetic to the importance of progress on unemployment relative to inflation. Um, but the FOMC is a committee, seven members of the Board of Governors, five uh, Reserve Bank pre presidents on, on a rotating basis vote at any time. Uh, and uh, the Fed takes pride in its independence. It is, it is a... It, <clears throat> It reports to Congress, uh, not to the administration. Uh, and uh, keep in mind that uh, uh, the leadership of Congress could be changing with the next election. When it's clear that the inflation, inflation has gone too far, uh, the Fed will step on the brakes. This will cause a substantial disruption in the markets and ultimately a recession. Uh, the, the rising unemployment could cause the Fed to ease up too soon uh, in response. Uh, in which case the underlying inflation problem will not have been dealt with sufficiently. Uh, it's also possible, though much less likely, that a surprisingly strong Democratic victory in the next uh, election could lead to actually lead to an increase, uh, a legislated increase in the Fed's inflation mandate. This, I think, would be a mistake, uh, and it could lead to the, a repeat of the stop-go 1970s. So Jim, if this if the market does wake up and start really being concerned about the inflation threat, how are the credit markets and equity markets going to respond? Yeah, I mean, with regard to uh, to rates, U.S. rates, which is probably one of the key drivers of global financial 
assets. Uh, our, our fixed income strategy team led by Francis Jared believe uh, that if inflation expectations revert permanently back into that 1998 to 2014 regime I talked about before, then uh, a three-year uh, sorry, a 10-year Treasury yield of 3% is a feasible first stop. Now, their forecasts don't assign 100% probability to that occurring, but you can see uh, the risk if we just go back to where we were between 98 and 2014. So not overshoot, just go back to, uh, to, to where we were. Um, for equities, it is more nuanced. Um, our equity strategist, Binky Shadow, has uh, suggested that a move to notably higher inflation you know, could see a, a pretty quick 20% correction in equities if that uh, occurred. In, in the long run, I personally think it's probably a, a race between inflation boost in earnings potential, but higher inflation historically lower in multiples. So equities from a valuation point of view love low stable inflation. It, it's where multiples are highest. Um, so, you know, inflation will bring lower multiples. Uh, in terms of sectors, there could be quite wild swings. Um, the growth stocks like tech have done very well with low, low yields as most of the growth is way into the future. So a low discount rate uh, helps massively. So if you did see a higher inflation, higher yield scenario, that discount rate would be higher and you know, tech would have a big problem. But you know, value and cyclical sectors may do pretty well after the initial sell-off. So I think the main thing in equities, I think the, the, the kind of rotation we've seen in the last few months could get supersized if, if you do see inflation and uh, higher yields. In terms of credit markets, they will follow equities more or less, but I think for a more nuanced view, the key is real yields. Um, if nominal yields rise, but real yields stay very low or, or even negative as they are currently, this is far more positive uh, in a heavily indebted world than if real yields uh, rise. And I think this is quite key going forward. Um, I think real yields will have to be watched very carefully by the, by the Fed. If, if they lose control of uh, what are now very low and, and negative real yields, then the, the global debt mountain, in my opinion, is very, very, very vulnerable. Uh, and financial crises uh, around the world are likely. Uh, you know, EM could be vulnerable and various other indebted entities. And that's why I think regardless of any cyclical variations, central banks will probably end up having to buy bonds for the rest of my career. They might stop for a period of time, but I think with this debt mountain that we have, it's going to be very difficult for the free market to fund all of that at a rate that keeps the financial system going. So, you know, regardless of whether we taper and, and the Fed tighten in, in the coming quarters or, or years, I think we'll periodically be back to kind of Fed buying on and off for, for, for many years uh, to come. So one final question from me. Jim, in, in your opening comments, you said that you believe the new orthodoxy in economic thought uh, states that you know, inflation is not a risk here and knowledge policy kind of rules and gravitational forces have changed. Tell me, do you think there is groupthink in as much as the orthodoxy, to question the orthodoxy is always a challenging thing? Or do you people, I think, are genuinely see this clearly? Um, whether or not it's groupthink, I think there is a, a an element that um, market participants and economists do swarm around a, 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 a current thinking. I mean, if you go, as I say, if you go back to the sovereign crisis a decade ago, I, I don't think any of us would have suggested that a decade on, 
you could have the level of debt you do have now and have interest rates pretty close to all-time multi-century lows. So, um, you know, I, if fast forward to today, who's saying the kind of what we're talking about today is going to be seen as correct in 10 years' time? So maybe the kind of move to tolerate higher fiscal spending will be seen as a, a mistake or at least one that has consequences, even though I think, uh, you know, most people are, are supporting it. But what I would say is that the debate today is probably a lot more uh, controversial, a lot more two-sided than the one a decade ago when we were talking about sovereign crises. Peter, you agree? I, I do, in a way. Now, I, I think listening to Jim, there's no question in my mind, uh, the final observation here, that uh, this, this, this next several years is going to return us to a period of difficulty in monetary policy making that we have not seen in 40 years. I mean, we're going back to something that's going to be both very economically and politically challenging. Well, thank you, gentlemen. It's been incredibly insightful. Appreciate your time today, and we'll see you again soon. Thank you very much. Thank you. Horizon Scanning has been produced by Deutsche Bank and is intended for general information purposes only. By accessing Horizon Scanning, you confirm that you are entitled to do so in accordance with your own regulatory requirements. Any opinions, estimates or projections discussed in this podcast constitute the current judgment of the speaker at the time of recording and do not represent a formal or official view of Deutsche Bank. Deutsche Bank does not make any representations or warranties in respect of the currency, accuracy or completeness of any information included in this podcast or the reasonableness of any opinions expressed. Information included may not be complete or up to date for your purposes and is subject to change. For further disclosures and other important information, please visit research.db.com.